Hi guys, the second reading for tonight is taken from Isaiah uh, chapter 6, which is on page 719, or it's up on the screen. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord seated on a throne, high and exalted, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphs, each with six wings. With two they covered their faces, and with two they covered their feet, and with two they were flying, and they were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. At the sound of their voices, the doorposts and thresholds shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. Woe to me, I cried, I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Then one of the seraphs flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from the altar. With it he touched my mouth and said, See, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? And I said, Here am I, send me. He said, Go and tell this people, Be ever hearing but never understanding, Be ever seeing but never perceiving. Make the heart of this people calloused, Make their ears dull and close their eyes. Otherwise they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and turn and be healed. Then I said, For how long, O Lord? And he answered, Until the cities lie ruined and without inhabitant, until the houses are left deserted and the fields ruined and ravaged, until the Lord has sent everyone far away and the land is utterly forsaken. And though a tenth remains in the land, it will, be, it will again be laid waste. But, as the terebinth and oak leave stumps when they are cut down, so the holy seed will be the stump in the land. So, before we look at this uh, beautiful part of God's word, let's, let's pray together. Dear Father, uh, we come to you knowing that you are amazing, that you are beyond anything that we even know or understand. We pray that you would help us to see how great you are tonight. And we pray that that would challenge us to commit our lives to such a glorious and wonderful God. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. <clears throat> this might actually come as a surprise uh, to some of you, but I actually have many weaknesses. Uh, I can't uh, sing, dance, draw, and worst of all, I can't go cross-eyed. I found this out at a uh, rare eye, specialist, eye, eye test. Uh, I was sitting there and I, I just got the colors all lined up in a row and got that perfect, she said. But then she put uh, this contraption on my face and I had to tell her what number I saw. And it must have been a pretty bad number because she sat down and she looked serious and she said, 
uh, you, you have a problem uh, and you need to, if you don't want this problem to get worse, then you have to do this exercise regularly uh, and you, you have, to have to put your finger out like this and follow, follow that all the way around like that. I'm supposed to do that regularly. I failed to do that regularly ever since. But uh, my eyes have a problem. Plus, when everyone else is going cross-eyed, I feel a little left out. <laughs> Technically, I have a vision problem and it grows worse the less I exercise. It's called convergence insufficiency. It can result in blurred vision, double vision, and sometimes headaches. I'm here to tell you that, in a sense, we all have convergence insufficiency. As a human being, when it comes to God, often our vision is strained. Often our vision is blurred. And often we don't see clearly. Isaiah had the same blurry vision that we have until one life-changing event. It fixed his eye strain, and he shares it with us in this chapter. We need to see what Isaiah saw to fix our own eyesight problems. Because this is far more serious than just a headache. This has to do with our destiny into eternity. So let's delve into Isaiah chapter 6 as we see Isaiah be enthralled, be appalled, and be installed with a better vision. It all begins when King Uzziah dies, uh, this king that has ruled for over 50 years, who has brought prosperity to Judah. Everyone's been going really well, but, but he's dead, and there's a power rising in the north, Assyria, and, and everything's up in the air. And everyone sees this dead king, except for Isaiah. And he sees a living king who is on a throne. And he shares it with us because he wants to see what he, what he sees. And he is enthralled with this king. So read verse 1 with me, this picture that he gives us. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord seated. On a throne, high and exalted, and the train of his robe filled the temple. This vision is wondrous. When everyone else is unsure of what will happen, here is the Lord seated on a throne. Everything is in his control. It's enough to just describe the train of his robe. Uh, when I got married and my wife was coming down the aisle, I wouldn't have just been content with just seeing the train of her dress. But here, this picture is so glorious, just describing the hem of the robe is enough for Isaiah to be in awe. But there's more. There were these burning ones above the Lord. They're called seraphs, also in awe of God. They covered their faces, their feet, and they were ready to do God's will at a moment's notice. And they are, they are calling to each other, saying this one thing. Let's read verse 2 and 3. Above him were seraphs, each with six wings. With two wings, they covered their faces. And with two, they covered their feet. And with two, they were flying. And were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. This is the message of the seraphs that they are continuously calling out to each other. And it is the message that we need to understand, that Isaiah understands. 
God is holy. They say it three times because that's the way Hebrew makes a superlative. So it's like in English we do, there's beautiful, there's more beautiful, and there's most beautiful. Uh, but they, they just say it multiple times. So if I was talking about my wife in Hebrew, I wouldn't just say she was beautiful. I would say she's beautiful, beautiful, beautiful. And here, here the Lord is holy, holy, holy. And this isn't just a, a moral perfection. It is something even more. The Lord is distinct. The Lord is is separate. He's above it all. Nothing is comparable to this God. The Lord's character is perfection and there is nothing greater. The one who merely spoke for this whole universe to come into existence, he is glorious. And with the voice of just one seraph, the temple shakes, it tells us. Then these aren't just chubby babies with wings like some uh, pictures of angels have us believe. They are powerful, yet they fall humbly, humbly before this Lord. Look at verse 4 with me. It says, At the sound of their voices, the doorposts and thresholds shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. This is an enthralling vision. Isaiah saw this, and he wants us to see this. Is this how you see God? Is this your vision of God? I was reading about people's, uh, when they claim that they've seen the divine, what they think they see, and often it's a grandfatherly figure holding out his hand, or, or, it's, or it's this overwhelming feeling of, of love that they feel, but, but this is the true picture of God. What Isaiah sees here is what we should all see. This holy God, this perfect God. When we think of God, are we enthralled? Being enthralled with the greatness of God is the only way that we can fix our eyesight problem. To throw off our glasses. If our vision of God doesn't have him as high and exalted and great and far above and more powerful and mighty than we are, then our vision will remain blurry. It will grow worse. Our understanding of God will be impaired and our headache will increase. But when we get this right, when our vision clears and we see God for he, who he is, not answerable to us, so much greater than we are, then we can understand what happens to Isaiah next in this passage. And if you want to know, if you've truly been enthralled, if your vision has been cleared, then you would also have reacted like Isaiah does next. Because after Isaiah sees and is enthralled, he then becomes appalled. At first, we might think that he would shout out what the seraphs have just shouted out. You know, shout out some praise like the angels are doing. Except here, all he can say is, woe is me. In the previous chapter, he said six times to Judah, woe is you. You know, con you are condemned. But here he sees God and all he can say is, woe is me. I am ruined. 
He's so small and insignificant. He is so lost. And he knows he deserves death because he truly sees himself for what he is. The double vision is gone. Isaiah sees God and he knows that there is nothing in him that is worthy for this God. Read verse 5 with me. Woe to me, I cried. I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Isaiah, he comes to the end of himself because he has seen God. He knows what comes out of his lips, shows his own heart, and he is appalled with himself. And not just himself, everyone around him. The holiest God shows Isaiah he is the most worthless human. Have you seen this? Our blurred, blind vision needs to be fixed. We need to see God and we need to see ourselves clearly. Now, so many people mistakenly see a problem with God instead of themselves. But unless we see ourselves as the problem, we will treat God as an add-on to our lives. We will, we will seek to control, dictate, question God over everything, thinking he should be happy with the hour we give him every Sunday. Unless we're enthralled with God and appalled with ourselves, we will think that God owes us something. He made us, you know, he needs to get his act together and help us out. But no, he doesn't. Isaiah realizes he knows God doesn't owe him anything. And we need to realize God doesn't owe us anything either. And just as this picture scrolls past Isaiah's vision and he is brought to his lowest point, he is crushed, he is distraught, he is appalled, ready to die, the unexpected happens. A coal from a burning sacrifice is taken and cauterizes his lips and poured out the filth of his heart. Cleansing his very soul. Read 6 and 7 with me. Then one of the seraphs flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from the altar. With it, he touched my mouth and said, See, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin is atoned for. I don't think that I've ever experienced or will experience the wave of emotion that would have flooded Isaiah's body. After what he has seen and after what he knows, all of it is taken away and this destitute inadequacy that he knows of himself is gone. And he is left clean, free, forgiven. No longer wallowing in self-guilt, nothing could describe the gratitude he now feels. His life has been spared and he has been forgiven. How's, how's our eyesight? Because so many of us have a double vision problem. We see ourselves as essentially good. The blurry letters that we make out are, you're not that bad. And it's because we're just comparing ourselves with each other. 
thinking that everyone else lies at times, everyone else has weaknesses that they struggle with, everyone else has some awful thoughts every now and then, everyone else fails, everyone else does this at times, and we're not so bad. But, but God doesn't. God's better. He is holy, and if we want to, a true indicator of ourselves then we must compare with God. And when we do, we see that there is nothing to credit ourselves. Nothing that gives us enough worth before God. So be enthralled by God and be appalled at yourself for it is only when we come to the end of ourselves then we see clearly like Isaiah does. And we can be free of guilt. We can be forgiven. And then we would respond like Isaiah does in the next section. We see Isaiah is installed in the service of God. This beautiful scene continues with the Lord saying something. He just puts it out there in verse 8. He says, whom shall I send and who will go for us? Can you you imagine it? Uh, Isaiah has just been overwhelmed like nothing else. In his life before, he has his gratitude to God and he would lay his life down to the one who saved his life and this question just goes out. And the little voice of Isaiah immediately says, Here I am, send me. Literally it says, Behold me, send me. Like a a joyful servant just desiring to do the least for this great king. He doesn't even know what, he, what he's supposed to do yet and he's already volunteering. He says, let me serve, let me do something. Give me anything, I would do it for you. And it's because he is enthralled with God, it's because he has been appalled with himself that he is now installed into a life of service to God. There's no other option and God says in verse 9, the two-letter word, Go. And how beautiful. God God has enough power without having to borrow from our puny arms. But he says to this eager servant whose vision has been healed, go for me. And Isaiah, he's overjoyed. But but the task, the task is hard. Read verse 9 and 10. He said, go and tell this people, be ever hearing but never understanding. Be ever seeing but never understanding perceiving make the heart of this people callous make their ears dull and close their eyes otherwise they might see with their eyes hear with their ears understand with their hearts and turn and be healed and these people that have rejected God God sends Isaiah on a mission to tell them that they are blocking up their ears and their eyesight is only going to get worse that they have failed, that it won't even be fixed. In fact, by Isaiah saying these things, it will make it even worse. Why? Why send Isaiah on a mission to do this? Well, it says, so that they will not turn and be forgiven. And Isaiah wonders how long he has to do this for. And God answers him, 11 to 13, Then I said, for how long, O Lord? And he answered, until the cities lie ruined and without inhabitants. Until the houses left deserted and the fields ruined and ravaged. Until the Lord has sent everyone far away and the land is utterly forsaken. 
And though a tenth remain in the land, it will again be laid waste. But as the terebinth and oak leave stumps when they're cut down, so the holy seed will be the stump in the land. How long does he have to do this for? Until the people are judged. And this may be surprising for some of you. God, God's going to judge these people and he's sending Isaiah to help that come to pass? What? And part of the reason that this is so hard to swallow is because we still have an impaired vision of God. We still haven't understood His holiness. We haven't seen what Isaiah saw. This is all part of God's plan. Those who reject will be rejected. They will be judged. And God's salvation plan includes judgment. Know this, God judges people. God will judge us if we block up our ears. If we don't get our vision clear. But God's salvation plan also includes salvation. And he says in the last verse, that last verse there, right at the end, the holy seed will be the stump in the land. I remember a beautiful, a beautiful gum tree. It was my favorite tree on the farm growing up. Except it grew so big that it began to shade the clothesline. So unfortunately, Dad had to take the whole thing out. But, but there was hope because he left this massive stump there. And eventually, after a while, I saw this little stem begin to grow from that stump. A little remained and would revive. There is hope for some. God says that he will preserve a living stem of people. And from this group of people, hope will survive in one last stump, from which a little shoot of life will sprout. And this tiny stem that we know, it keeps on growing throughout history until eventually it comes to one person, Jesus and you know, uh, with, with my stump, I was overjoyed to see that little stem come up. But how much more, how much more should our hearts leap at the grace that God shows here? Everything is judged, but God made sure that he would still save. And throughout history, he directed that plan he had all along to give life to people by the death of his son, Jesus. So tonight, we can only react in two ways. Either like the Israelites who refused the operation and stayed blind, or like Isaiah who pretty much had laser surgery and clearly saw. So will you stay blind? How do you know if you're blind? The easiest way of knowing is, if you don't care who God is, or if you don't care who you are in comparison to God. But we need to care because Isaiah saw that this God is real. And the only way we can stand before God is by that same burning coal Isaiah felt. 
the burning coal that is a, is a picture of what Jesus did on the cross. How Jesus went to the place of sacrifice. How his dying love is the only power that can make blind eyes see. Have you seen? Or are you still blind? Because if Jesus, if Jesus doesn't grip our hearts, grip our goals, grip our desires then we're still blind. So many people come to church and they pray because they need help for their plans and their goals and their desires. But if we are enthralled with God and pulled at ourselves, then we no longer live for our plans, but for God's. What Jesus has done should make us see even more than what Isaiah saw. That's the passage we read earlier, if you remember in Matthew, uh, right at the end, after Jesus quotes this part of Isaiah, he says, many prophets and righteous men have longed to see and hear what you see and hear. And that includes Isaiah. Isaiah longed to see and hear what we can know about Jesus now. We have something better than what even Isaiah saw. Something that should fix our eyes and make us enthralled with God even more. We have the picture of Jesus on a cross that should open our eyes if nothing else. So if you are blind tonight, then come to God. Come to this enthralling God, admitting defeat. Asking him to help you see. Asking him to fix you up, to make you clean, to forgive your sin and to take away your guilt and to be forgiven. By that sacrifice, by that coal that is Jesus. To stop being blind, we must be enthralled with God and we must be appalled at ourselves. But we also, we need to see, clearly see to be installed in his service, to say eagerly, behold me, send me. Uh, 1,500 years ago, one man, uh, he said this thing, his name's Augustine, he said, give me a man in love, he says. He knows what I mean. Give me one who yearns. Give me one who is hungry. Give me one far away in this desert who is thirsty and sighs for the eternal country. Give me that sort of man. He knows what I mean. But... If I speak to a cold man, he just does not know what I'm talking about. If we clearly see, we no longer stay cold. We are men and women who yearn, hunger, thirst. Our hearts are awakened by the grandeur of this God and we want to serve him. One guy I was reading about recently, Peter Scott, about a hundred years ago he lived, but he was born in Glasgow and he was enthralled with God. He was appalled at himself and he was installed in the service of God. And he decided that he wanted other people in Africa to know about this same God. So he goes over to Africa and he gets struck down with malaria and so bad that he has to go back again to London. But he, but he gets up the courage again to go back and he brings his brother John along this time. So he gets back to Africa 
and, and his brother John, he, he is struck down by a fever and he dies. And this guy, he has to, he has to bury his brother on African soil all alone. But still, he keeps on going until he gets sick again. And he has to come back again to London. What would make him go back there again? His brother's died over there. He's gotten sick so many times. Why go back? It is because he is enthralled with this God. It's because he is appalled at himself. It's because he is utterly installed into the service of God. And so he goes back. And he starts this mission, Africa Inland Mission, that's still going today and telling people that same gospel, enthralling people with that same vision. And I think we have to ask ourselves, would we be willing to do what Peter did? To go through so much suffering because this, this is where the buck stops. This is how you know if you see clearly or if your vision's still blurred. Would we be willing to be Peter Scott's? Now, not everyone here will go overseas. Not everyone here will face what he faces. But the question remains, would we be willing? Would you be willing? This is what someone who sees clearly does. They go overseas. They sacrifice. They, they, they volunteer for ESL and teach people learning English about Jesus. They, they give up their time for the CU mission and go door knocking around Surrey Hills to tell them of Jesus. They, they, they support local missionaries and local ministries like Christian Union. They give generously to people wanting to go overseas. They're not stingy. People who see clearly think through specific ways that they can bring up Jesus in conversation with their workmates or their study mates. They spend time finding out about this Jesus who they're enthralled with. How clearly do we see? I need to ask myself, and you need to ask yourself, am I still blind? Do I clearly see? Am I willing? Am I truly enthralled with God, appalled at myself, and utterly installed in the service of God? May we see even more than Isaiah sees. May we see Jesus. And may that, may that change us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you are an enthralling God. We know that nothing compares to you and yet we so often try and bring you down to us. Help us to see your greatness. Help us to see your holiness. May we realize that we are nothing compared to you, that we don't deserve you in any way and yet you sent Jesus and yet you forgive us. Help us, Father, to be wholly devoted, wholly committed to your goals in our lives. 
In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.